0: Welcome to the Charlotte Readers Podcast, where books and writing topics are center stage and where authors give voice to the written words. I'm Landis Wade, and on behalf of my co-hosts, Hannah LaRue and Sarah Archer, we thank you for listening.
1: The Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. Listen to your city at queencitypodcastnetwork.com.
0: Hey, readers and writers, welcome to this episode number 345 of Charlotte Reeves podcast, Beyond 300, getting close to 350, that's, that's pretty good. Hey, I'm here today with co host Sarah Archer and Hannah LaRue, and we've got a great lineup for you today.
2: We sure do. We're starting with an author feature with debut author and esteemed editor Jenny Jackson in her novel Pineapple Street, which is the most anticipated book of 2023 by Vogue and Time, and has received praise from numerous outlets, including Southern Living, Lit Hub, Kirkus, She Reads, and Booklist.
3: Yeah, and up next we have a two-minute tip from Paul Reale of Charlotte Lit called The Rules of Writing Part 3, Finish Before Revising.
2: Then we're going to have a writing topic discussion a little bit different today because it's Jeff Sovel, who is a book lover but also a podcaster, so we'll get to hear from him.
0: Yeah, and he's going to talk about uh, asking your doctor if podcasting is right for you. And we finish up today with uh, reading recommendations, book pitches, community enlistment engagement, what's coming in the next uh, episode yeah, but first, what's up with the podcast books? Uh, this month we're celebrating the release of book four. Hard to believe, book four already. It's uh, book four in the Right Quotes series titled Storytelling, Inspiration, and Research. And we are inspired by this series. Yes, we are, aren't we, Sarah?
2: Yeah, for sure. Um, We're very excited to share these inspirational and practical quotes. They come from over 500 podcast interviews. The authors quoted are hardworking, award winning, super talented New York Times bestselling authors in more than 33 US states and five countries.
3: Yep, and this book reveals how they really feel about storytelling, inspiration, in research. Um, and research. To learn more, you just go to our website, charlottereaderspodcast.com, and click on the podcast books tab in the menu bar. Um, you can order this book online and in print wherever books are sold.
2: Also, don't forget that the first book in the Write Quote series, which is called The Writing Life, can be downloaded for free online. That's our gift to the writing universe. <laughs> so look for that link on the podcast books page of our website.
0: Yeah, and you can, uh, when you get to our podcast books page on the website, you'll see uh, the book covers and the links for all the books, including uh, those that are out that you can order and those that are uh, available to pre-order. Uh, next uh, in the series is going to be uh, book five, Writing Techniques and Characters. That's a July 1 release. Uh, book six, Writing, Community, Revision, and Editors. That's an August 1st release. Book seven, The Emotional Writing Journey. That's September 1st. And on October 1st, we have book eight, Publishing and Book Marketing.
2: And then if you want to receive all eight of these wonderful books for free, you can join our street team. Um, just go to the link on the contact tab at charlotteweirspodcast.com. Also on the podcast books page at the website, there's a link. All you have to do to receive all the books for free, the e-books, is just agree to leave short, honest reviews. Um, just a few words about how you felt about the books. They're not heavy reads, but they're full of weighty tips and reflections.
3: Yeah, my dog's a member of the uh, street team, so... <laughs> She also wanted to remind you guys that if you become a Patreon supporter of the podcast, it's only $5 a month, Um, and we will give you all the books for free as soon as they release, and that's in addition to the 150 exclusive episodes of uh, content that you don't get on the regular show um, on the craft and business of writing, so lots of good stuff.
0: All right, folks. Uh, Well, right after this, we're going to start in with Act One, our interview segment of the show, so uh, stay with us.
2: We have a newsletter called beyond 300 and we'd love to have you sign up this is where we share what's coming on the podcast provide helpful links and keep you updated on the podcast and the hosts you can sign up at charlottereaderspodcast.com or the websites of the host Sarah ArcherWrights.com, or spellboundpublicrelations.com and by the way we won't spam you because that takes way too much time
0: All right, here we are with our interview uh, act one segment uh, of the podcast. Uh, The author is Jenny Jackson. The book title is Pineapple Street. Uh, Hey, you want to tell us about uh, Jenny, Sarah? Sarah?
2: Yeah, um, I had a great time talking to Jenny. She's the vice president and executive editor at Alfred A. Knopf, where she's worked with authors including Cora McCarthy, Gabrielle Zevin, Emily St. John Mandel, Kevin Kwan, and many others. Um, this is her debut novel, and she was inspired to write Pineapple Street in the early days of the pandemic when she packed up her own Brooklyn Heights clan and went to stay with her in-laws in Connecticut. It's a, a really fun book.
0: Yeah, it sounded really interesting. <laughs> and uh, Hannah, I'm going to ask you if you say what she said in her words about the book and then share any praise
3: yeah so she says um, this about the kind of novel she wanted to write um, she goes i wanted to write about that funny feeling of being an outlaw among your in-laws <laughs> <I love> that. <laughs> that feeling that no matter how long you are married you'll never really get that get the plant thing or the naked people with cats art thing you've never <laughs> <laughs> You're never really one of them. <laughs> oh, my gosh. She was probably so fun to talk to. <laughs> she was. <laughs> I love that. Um, so she got some great praise for her book. Uh, Vogue says calls it a delicious new gilded age family drama, almost a satire set in the leafy enclaves of Brooklyn Heights, um, a lighthearted book that captures a slice of New York society, a guilty pleasure that also feels like a sociological text. Um, and then Time called it one of their most anticipated books of 2023 and said this witty novel about the haves and have mores in succession with a soul. Whoa. <laughs> well, me and Sarah love succession. So yeah. um, we're reader. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You got us.
0: <laughs> we, uh, all right. Well, let's listen into this interview.
2: Um, I'm excited to be here today with Jenny Jackson, author of Pineapple Street. Jenny, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Um, This book was so fun, as I was just telling you, I I loved reading this. And um, it begins with two different epigraphs that I think are a great setup for the book. Um, I'll go ahead and read the epigraphs here for our listeners. The first is from Zoe Beery in the New York Times, um, who said, Millennials will be the recipients of the largest generational shift of assets in American history, the great wealth transfer as finance types call it. Tens of trillions of dollars are expected to pass between generations in just the next decade. And then there's a shorter quote from Truman Capote, who said, I live in Brooklyn by choice. (laughs) Can you tell us a little bit about those quotes and how you chose them to set up the
1: book? Yeah. So the Zoe Beery article in the New York Times was hugely inspirational for me as I sat down to write Pineapple Street. I sort of knew somewhere in my head that I wanted to write a book about a family and I wanted to set it in Brooklyn Heights. Um, But when I read this article about these millennials who feel that inherited wealth is in conflict with their morals, it got me thinking about how interesting it would be to write a novel about a family where one member of the family, a wealthy family, where one member of the family decides she wants to give away her inheritance. And so that article was just kind of the birth of the concept of the novel for me. And then the other quote by Truman Capote makes me laugh. I think because on the surface the quote is just very funny. Because um, when I was you know, 20 years ago, when I moved to New York, it was sort of seen in in my circles that you know Manhattan was the place to be, and you only lived in Brooklyn if you couldn't afford to live in Manhattan. And that has completely changed now. And Brooklyn is an extremely desirable and overpriced pra- place to live. Um, but Truman Capote fascinatingly wrote um, both Breakfast at Tiffany's and in Cold Blood while he was living here in Brooklyn Heights at 70 Willow Street. And Truman Capote treated the home at 70 Willow as though he were the owner of this big house when in fact he just rented a basement apartment from a friend. So (laughs) it just speaks to like the hypocrisy and grandiosity of the neighborhood in some ways.
2: Yeah, I love that. <laughs> that's perfect. Um, and so as you're kind of referencing, the book is about the 1%. It's about the uber wealthy. Um, I feel like that's a world that often in books, movies, TV is approached from a satirical angle, like, you know, the TV show Succession is very popular right now. Um, there's this kind of like takedown mentality when we see those characters typically. And I think in this book, you you sort of play on the edge of satire at some moments. But um, and, you, you know, you bring a critical eye to this world, but you're also really showing these characters as humans and as real sympathetic people. And I'm curious how you sort of navigated walking that line. And in particular, I think uh the, the choice of the narrative perspective where you're in this kind of um, close third person voice allows you to sort of have closeness to the characters, but also yes. a little bit of objectivity. And I'm wondering if you can talk about how you navigated that uh, distinction.
1: I love the way that you ask this um, because you're right that close third person was so important in having that difference between the way that the characters perceive themselves and the way that the reader can perceive the character you know first person really limits you in terms of what you're allowed to know about somebody that they can't know about themselves it can be done but there's not as wide a margin to play in whereas close third you really can have some difference between the characters and the reader um i think that sasha's close third person is Very close. I think that Sasha is the in-law. Sasha has a middle-class background. She's married into this family. And the reader, I'm hoping, will feel a great deal of connection and empathy for Sasha from the jump. I think she's pretty relatable. Georgiana who is the baby of the family and what I like to refer to as the delightful brat of the novel is gonna be a little bit um, more foreign to the to the reader at first because she is really oblivious to her privilege and over the course of the novel she wakes up and she sort of has a moral reckoning. Um, but you know Georgiana has, um, just certain ways that she approaches her life. You know, she will show up at a dinner party without even bringing a bottle of wine. She borrows clothes from her mother and then just dumps them at the dry cleaner on her mother's credit card. She is. She really is just skating along without much regard for others while thinking that she's a really good person because she works at a nonprofit. Um, and the reader can see that she really is kind of um missed the uh, missed the memo on how to actually comport yourself
2: yeah and um as you're kind of saying there you have these three main point of view characters who are at very different phases in their lives. Um, or, you know, not not that far apart in terms of age, but enough that it makes a difference, I think, in terms of how they approach life and how they treat other people. You've got Darlie and Georgiana, the sisters, and then Sasha, their sister-in-law. Um, but you also have a pretty big cast of characters. There's also their uh, partners and families and friends who come into play. Um, and I'm always interested, when somebody's writing an ensemble story like that, was there one character you kind of gravitated towards most and really enjoyed writing, or even maybe one character you found the most difficult to write?
1: Well, strangely enough, the character I enjoyed writing the most is the character that readers probably are going to find the most enraging, and that is the mother character, Tilda, because Tilda's dialogue just made me laugh. For whatever reason, her character was just alive in my head. Tilda is the product of generational wealth. Tilda comes from a long line of political figures. Her brother was the governor of New York. Her father was the governor of New York. Her family's been photographed in Vanity Fair. She thinks that she works because she throws parties um, and she is obsessed with tablescapes, with the setting of a beautiful table. I will tell you that I had like seen the word tablescape a couple times, but for whatever reason, I got really into the idea that Tilda, this party planner, was obsessed with tablescapes I just went so deep down a rabbit hole learning about tablescaping and like honestly I will tell you that in general my tablescape at home consists of like some paper napkins next to your plate while we're eating dinner like I am not I'm not a tablescaper but this character just captured my imagination and I think she has some of the funniest lines in the books I had a blast writing her.
2: Yeah, she was a lot of fun to read and I, I want her to come and do my tablescape and oh, some yeah. theme tats. She's but great. She'll with the say theme some tats judgy too. things
1: while she does it. I'm gonna warn you. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh no.
2: I, I want her to. I need her to like drag my tablescaping skills. <laughs> she was great. Um, so on another note, one of the themes here that I saw kind of emerging was um, the idea of questioning assumptions or questioning what you, you think about the people around you. You, you know, you have these characters um, as you referenced with Georgiana, like kind, kind of waking up and seeing themselves and their lives in a different light, seeing the people around them in a different light. And I think even with the way that we as readers approach the characters, you're sort of inviting us to question our assumptions about them too, as the story goes on. Um, yeah. Can you talk a bit about that idea and that theme and anything that you wanted to explore there with that notion of kind of questioning or taking a deeper look at the world around you?
1: Sure. I mean, I think that Malcolm and Darley's storyline is one of the places where I really enjoyed working on those assumptions. So Malcolm um, is a, the love of Darley's life. They met at, um, at business school. They both became investment bankers. They both are obsessed with the airline industry. They are high achieving go-getters. Malcolm is second generation Korean American and Darley has always felt like that just didn't matter in their relationship. She is from a, you know, a really waspy family, um, and, but she gets along incredibly well with his parents, and he gets along with her parents. And she's always sort of felt like the fact that he is so successful and that they are so similar has meant that his background doesn't matter. In, at the end of Darley's first chapter, Malcolm gets fired from his job and Darley decides not to tell anyone in her family that that has happened and over the course of the novel we learn what Malcolm thinks about Darley's decision and what kind of prejudices that might reveal about her about her family um and and, and it was a a, a tricky and painful thing for them and I found it just a really interesting idea to examine the way that class and race intersect in family life.
2: Yeah I think that's such an interesting notion and the way that it plays out too is so subtle kind of one beat at a time these characters start to realize and and you almost are right there with them and you the way that you kind of write it it's like you don't even realize until they realize in that moment then you're like oh like why didn't I see this all along Mm. that she was sort of shaming him by by doing that but yeah i think that that's a really um fascinating part of the book and um i mean as as we mentioned there is a lot of humor and lightness in the tone there's some great comedy in there like with tilda and the tablescapes but you are touching on some really sensitive topics i mean things like uh wealth class race intergenerational conflict um i think these are ideas that people are sometimes even afraid to write or talk about in a frank way did you worry at all when you're writing this about what the reception would be or how people would react to those sort of sensitive topics?
1: Definitely. Definitely. I mean, I think that it's hard to write about, um, about money because everybody feels insecure in some way about money. I think people who grew up without money feel insecure. I think people who grew up with money feel insecure. I think I come from, I, I grew up, Uh, middle-class, and I think I'm probably more comfortable talking about money than others, but I recognize that that is a real privilege in and of itself, you know? I mean, I was given a great education. I I, I was really lucky, Um, and so, you know, we we think and talk a lot about who has the right to tell what story, but I just feel like um, if something is sort of taboo in our culture, then we should probably explore it, and so I wanted to dive in, but yes, definitely felt a little bit... um, like I was bringing some of my own privilege to this project.
2: Yeah, yeah. But it is such an interesting, I think, juncture in time, too, to talk about these things, like you were refer- talking about with the article, where a lot of people who are younger, who have generational wealth, are approaching that in a very different way than maybe their forebears. Um, so it's, a, it's an interesting point in time, I think, to have those conversations.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm seeing the way that um, the 20-somethings in my office talk about being paid for their work, the way that we have all changed our attitude towards f- f- unpaid internships or mm-hmm. towards overtime or, you know, um, there have been uh, strikes at, um, in publishing among the workers um, at HarperCollins. So it's like it's really a live wire topic right now.
2: Yeah, for sure. Um, Well, I want to pick your brain about it a little bit more, but first I would love to have you read us um, a passage from the book if you have something you can share.
1: Yeah, so I would love to just start with the very beginning of the book. This is a prelude, and um, we're going to meet a character here who is not part of the family, and he's going to give us a little bird's-eye view. Curtis McCoy was early for his 10 o'clock meeting so he carried his coffee to a table by the window where he could feel the watery April sun. It was a Saturday, Joe Coffee was crowded and Brooklyn Heights was alive. Women in running tights pushing strollers along Hicks Street, dog walkers congregating at the benches on Pineapple Street, families dashing to soccer games, swimming lessons, birthday parties down at Jane's Carousel. At the next table, a mother sat with her two adult daughters drinking from blue and white paper cups, peering at the same phone. Oh, here's one. This guy's profile says he likes running, making his own kimchi, and dismantling capitalism. Curtis tried not to listen, but couldn't help himself. Darley, he's twice my age. No, do you even understand how the app works? The name Darley rang a bell, but Curtis couldn't quite place her. Brooklyn Heights was a small neighborhood. She was probably just someone he'd seen in line ordering sandwiches at Lassen or someone he'd crossed paths with at the gym on Clark Street. Fine, fine, okay, this guy says, cis male vegan seeks fellow steward of the earth. Never eat anything with a face except the rich. You can't date a vegan. The footwear is ghastly, the mother interrupted. Give me that phone. (sighs) The wiffy here is terrible. Mom, it's pronounced Wi-Fi. Curtis risked a quick peek at the table. The three women were dressed in tennis whites, the mother a blonde with gold earrings and a notable array of rings on her fingers, the daughters both brunette, one lanky with straight hair cut to her shoulders, the other softer with long wavy hair loosely tied in a knot. Curtis ducked his head back down and broke off a crumbly bite of poppy seed scone. By and non-monogamous looking for a commie mommy to help me smash the patriarchy hit me up to go dancing am I having a stroke the older woman murmured I don't understand a word of this Curtis fought back a snicker mom give me the phone the wavy-haired daughter snatched back the iPhone and tossed it in her bag with a start Curtis realized he knew her it was Georgiana Stockton She'd been in his high school class at Henry Street 10 years ago. He contemplated saying hello, but then it would be obvious he'd overheard their entire conversation. In my day, things were so much simpler, Georgiana's mother tutted. You just went out with your dead ball escort or maybe your brother's roommate from Princeton. Right, Mom, but people in my generation aren't giant elitist snobs, Georgiana said and rolled her eyes. Curtis smiled to himself. He could imagine having the same exact conversation with his own mother, trying to explain why he wasn't going to marry her friend's daughter just because they owned adjoining properties on Martha's Vineyard. As Curtis watched Georgiana out of the corner of his eye, she suddenly jumped up from her chair. Oh no, I left my Cartier bracelet in Lena's BMW and she's leaving soon for her grandmother's house, house in Southampton. Georgiana tossed her bag over her shoulder, grabbed her tennis racket off the floor, planted a quick kiss on both her mother and sister, and clattered past Curtis to the door. As she swept by, her tennis racket banged Curtis's table, sloshing his coffee, dousing his poppy seed scone, and leaving him frowning in her wake.
2: Oh my gosh, I love that. Thank you. That's <laughs> you can a fun you one. can tell yeah, it's a lot of fun and you can tell so much about a family by watching them look at Tinder together like a mother <laughs> and her kids. It's a great social experiment. <laughs> um I, I love that passage. So I want to talk a little bit more about sort of your, your career and how you came to this point with writing this novel. Of course, now, in addition to being a published author, you have a great um, career as an editor as well. You've worked with authors like Cormac McCarthy, Kevin Kwan, Catherine Heine, um, Emily St. John Mandel, Gabriel Zevin, so many amazing writers. Um, now that you've experienced things from kind of the author side of the street, do you think that's going to impact how you work as an editor at all or the, the eye that you bring as an
1: editor? Definitely, definitely, definitely. I wish in some ways that I had written a novel 10 years ago because I feel like I've learned an incredible amount about structure. I've learned an incredible amount about giving notes and I've learned so much and have so much more respect for revision. I think that as an editor, I've always prided myself on delivering these really thorough Thoughtful, long editorial letters. And when I, as a writer, got a 15-page editorial letter from my editor, I, like, nearly fell down. I shoved it in a drawer and I, like, pouted for two weeks. It felt like so much. Um, but I also think that I understand now, in a much better way, how there are some things that are just unknowable to a writer about their characters. I remember once Katherine Heine, when she was writing... Um, standard deviation, I asked her how the two main characters, the the husband and wife, how they met, and she said, oh, I don't know that, at the time, I thought, "Uh, well, like, you wrote them, so, (laughs) so, like, just tell us, (laughs) now I understand, there are just some things that you can't really know, or don't make sense to you, or you tried it a few ways, and it didn't, work and it wasn't right. And you just, it's just like not something you're going to be able to know. And I found that fascinating. You can't just make something up and have it necessarily fit with the whole rest of the story. So it's been a really remarkable adventure for me.
2: Yeah, that's so true. And I, I love the way you articulated that, too. I think that's, that's a really great point. Um, and so obviously, you, you've been working in publishing for years. You're surrounded by stories. I'm sure, uh, like any writer, you've got lots of story ideas swimming around in your head. Um, I, I'm curious, why was this the choice for your debut? Like, what spoke to you about this, this story, this group of characters as your sort of first calling card to enter the world as an author with?
1: You know, I wanted to write something that was not at all based on my life because I have just seen um, so many writers wrestle with how hard it is to share a lot of their personal stuff. And for me, I will tell you, there is a lot here, but only the little stuff is true. The big stuff, not true. The little stories, like the two children who pick up a dead pigeon and carry it around the playground, my kids did that. The baby who eats the sister-in-law's baby tooth, my friend's kid did that. The dog who vomits up a pair of underwear, my friend's dog did that. So, like, the little stuff, I just made the book sound so gross. But anyway, (laughs) the little stuff is true. The big stuff isn't, and I just felt like that would be a really fun place for me to dive in from, from just, you know, telling a story that felt like a fantasy that I wanted to live in for a little while.
2: Yeah, yeah. And I think that sometimes bringing those like little true life anecdotes and sprinkling in those bits of reality just makes the story feel so much more alive. And, you know, the things that Tilda would be aghast at are (laughs) the parts that really happen. Um, So you've gotten some wonderful blurbs on this from, you know, amazing authors. They've compared your work to people like Henry James, uh, Jane Austen, Edith Wharton. Um, Are there certain writers who have inspired you in your work?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm inspired by writers I work with and writers I don't work with. Um, I absolutely, since I was tiny, since I was tiny, since I was in high school, I've loved Bridget Jones's diary. and um, And I actually got to work with Helen Fielding and be her editor, which was like, the trip of a lifetime because she's so funny and so wonderful, but I love the way that she uses humor and voice. I love super voicey stuff. Um, I'm a really big fan of Curtis Sittenfeld. I love all of her books. I just like wait for every single one and pre-order it and read it. I devour it like within one day of it coming out. And, you know, she writes about such a huge variety of things, but she brings so much warmth to what she's writing about. Um, I absolutely love the way Kevin Kwan writes. I love the way he taught me how to kind of turn up the volume on a sense of place. Um, Catherine Heine taught me a lot about how to write a joke and how to write a joke that is born of character rather than circumstance. Um, so I feel like I've just been like kind of soaking up lessons like a sponge.
2: It's like the, the dream MFA course, right? Exactly. Yes. <laughs> for these I didn't even writers. have they paid
1: me to take my MFA. It was amazing. Yeah. <laughs>
2: That's wonderful. Um so we're we're going to wrap up here soon, but I would love to ask you if you could go back in time and give one piece of advice to yourself as a younger writer. What would you want to tell yourself that you think might have helped along the way?
1: Oh, I wish that I had kept more faithful journals. I wish that I had written down more of the funny little things that have happened because I as I was writing this novel started keeping notes like crazy and weaving and weaving and weaving, but I'm like, imagine if I had 43 years worth of journals to call on. That would be like a treasure trove. So I did journal a ton all through high school. Um, Unfortunately, this sounds so dramatic. My parents' house got hit by lightning and my high school journals disappeared in the fire. So I don't have any of those. It's for the best. I'm sure they were like mostly super embarrassing. But um, I wish I had more journals. So I would give myself the advice to keep writing journals.
2: Yeah, oh, that's a great one. Yeah, and I think just in general, write it down is always yeah. good advice, even if it seems small. Sometimes those are the, the things that matter later. Um, well, thank you so much, Jenny. This has been wonderful, and I hope that everyone goes out and enjoys Pineapple Street. It's a beautiful book.
1: Thank you, Sarah. What a great conversation.
2: For all things Charlotte Readers Podcast, check out charlottereaderspodcast.com. You can find a list of all episodes, an alphabetical guest list with links, Detailed show notes for each episode, a community blog, and more. We'd love to have you visit. All
0: right, here we are back with uh, Act 2. It's uh, writing topics. We've got a Charlotte 2-Minute Tip. We've got a blog post uh, from one of our authors on our community blog. Uh, first, with the tip, it's from Paul Reale. It's uh, part of a series he's doing this month. Uh, this is Rules of Writing, Part 3, Finish Before Revising. So let's listen in.
4: Hi, I'm Paul Rialli, co-founder of Charlotte Lit with a two minute writing tip for Charlotte Readers podcast. This is one of a series of tips about the so-called rules of writing. Today, we look at the common advice that you should finish a draft before revising. On the surface, this is a straightforward question. Finish then revise or revise as you go. This is one of those bits of advice that is masking the actual underlying concern writers who never finish anything because they continually restart and rewrite and polish but never actually get to the end let me begin then with the defense of getting to the end i have many 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 story starts the vast majority don't get finished because they don't merit being finished by staying with the story to the end i give it a chance of life essentially i am saying there is something workable here i can make something out of this I can breathe life into this story. If I can't get to the end, maybe there is no there, there. On the other hand, there are occasions where I stop in the middle, go back to the beginning, and start again. But I would not call this revising. I would call this rewriting. I do this when I know the story has merit, but that I've headed in the wrong direction, say, or decided on a particular change, such as point of view. I once got to 75% of a novel to the end of act two and without finishing started a rewrite. I did this because I knew that once I got back to the end of act two, the story would be in a different place. Why write the last act that I already knew was never going to be in the book? So I didn't. What I also never do when a story is incomplete is to go back to the beginning and revise or polish. There's a very good reason for this. Life is too short. It wastes my time and creative energy to rewrite or polish scenes. that may not even make the final draft. It really wastes my time and energy to work on scenes for stories that I may never finish. There's a larger warning here embedded in the advice to finish the draft before you rewrite. Don't hone and sculpt and polish until the work reaches that stage which is well after the first draft, well after the second. Otherwise, it's likely you'll have beautiful prose that no one will ever see. For more two-minute tips from Charlotte Lit, listen to Beyond 300 episodes of this podcast or visit charlottelit.org slash tips.
0: All right, Paul, thanks for that uh, tip. Another good one. Uh, Hannah, thoughts?
3: Yeah, I love that. Um, I'm reminded of a something that Sylvia Molnar said and she'll be in the next episode in the interview I had with her. She was just she goes, you know, I'm not ashamed to say I had like fifty plus rewrites. <laughs> on my book you know and I thought about that a lot while he was talking because it's true I mean you know rewriting re-revising like going back and polishing up like doing something different than you thought you were going to do I mean there's really you have to do it if you have to do it I think that there's no shame in doing that and it's one of those things where probably some of the best books ever written it's I mean every book has revisions you know what I mean so um, like moving forward with when you know it's not where the book or the story needs to go why even do it you're wasting your time so you might as well kind of get rid of the idea of like oh well this is what i thought it was going to be and then make it what it was meant to be so it's just kind of an interesting thing and i, I love that tip because i think a lot of people are like well, i don't want to be that person that has a 100 rewrites. of but, this but who cares as long as it's the way you want it to be in the end that's what you're looking for
0: sarah your thoughts
2: Yeah, I mean, I I love this post. I think there's a lot of good advice in there. Um, I'm, I'm definitely more in the camp of writers where I just try to like write through to the end of the first draft and get it done before I go back and reread or revise anything. But I know people who revise along the way, like they'll, um, before they sit down to write anything new, they'll read back over what they read or what they wrote last time, and they'll make revisions. And they still finish books, they still get to the end of the draft. So I think it's one of those things where you just have to know like how you work and how your mind works and what's best for your process. Um, But Paul made some great points about also like, don't, don't waste your time continuously revising something, whether it's a whole work that is just never really going to go anywhere or a particular scene or passage that might end up getting cut. Um, And that, that can be hard because I know sometimes at least for me when I'm writing, like I'll always have moments where I'm like, Oh, this is trash. Like I'm never going to finish this. What's the point? I don't know what this is. This is terrible. So how do you find that balance between like, you know, persisting when, you just need to get over that hump and over those negative feelings versus recognizing like, okay, maybe this project actually isn't worth my time and that can be a really difficult line to walk. Um, but yeah, I think that that's, that's good advice about like just manage your writing time wisely because you only have so much of it.
0: Yeah. Those are the same thoughts I had about it's, it's a question of time management. I've interviewed a number of authors as you all know, and y'all have two now. Um, and I found that the ones who, have put out 15, 17, 20 novels. Uh, Some of them like to uh, write a chapter one day and then the next morning they'll kind of read it again and clean it up before they go to the next one. But they're probably so much further along in the writing than a lot of people are that uh, that makes for them a better form of time management, because maybe they know what is gonna make the cut and not make the cut. But if you are really just writing that first draft, and you know you're going to have many revisions, uh, like I did with Daily Declarations, it is better not to sit there and sort of pull your hair out about whether the first chapter is perfect or not, right? There's going to be plenty of time later to go back and work on those first sentences and chapters and do it. And by the way, your editor is going to make you do it anyway, so you, <laughs> you, might, <laughs> a good point. you might as well, you know. Right through, but again, if it works for you to, to revise and it makes you, it gives you that inspiration to write the next piece, do that too. So we're sort of like, you know, lawyers on the show. We always say it depends, you know, it yeah. uh, when you ask us a question about writing, it just depends, right?
2: It's a diplomatic answer, but I think it's true. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's what works for you. All right. Well, uh, thanks Paul for that. Uh, let's, uh, let's say right after this, uh, we're going to jump into a community blog post.
2: We have an affiliation with Libro.fm because you can get audiobooks from them, and when you do, you support independent bookstores. If you'd like to sign up with them for your audiobooks, use the promo code Charlotte Reader and claim your free audiobook.
0: All right, here we are with uh, Jeff Slavel, a uh, book lover and podcaster. He's got the uh, what is it called, the one minute podcast i think it is and uh yeah
2: the page, the page
0: one page, challenge. Pa- page one podcast yeah mm-hmm. uh and his title is ask your doctor if podcasting is right for you sarah tell us about jeff
2: um, sure. So Jeff's day job is as a software engineer in healthcare IT. He's uh, calls himself a hobby podcaster, and he was influenced by decades of listening to NPR shows like This American Life, Snap Judgment, The Moth, Hidden Brain, and Prairie Home Companion, and even a show called Radio Reader. He also has decades of practice reading out loud to his kids and now his grandkids. He launched the Page One Challenge podcast in January 2023. It's available on most of the major podcast platforms, and you can also find it on the website thepageonechallenge.com. One is a numeral. It's just The digit is not spelled
0: out. Yeah, and uh, Sarah's book was featured on there. My book was featured on there. It's an interesting show because it's a very short podcast. If you only have five minutes or less uh, and you want to listen to a podcast, uh, this is the one for you, particularly if you just want to find out if that first page is enough to draw you in, enough Mm -hmm. to go buy that book. Uh, So let's play his uh, blog post and then talk a little podcasting.
5: Ask your doctor if podcasting is right for you. In 2023, there are something like 2 million podcasts, and growth is not slowing down. Perhaps you have considered starting a podcast yourself. Does it seem daunting? The challenge may not be where you think it is. In my opinion, the biggest challenge is not what I'll call the mechanics of podcasting. There are hundreds of instructional videos on YouTube that show you how to do it. Choosing a microphone, recording and editing, podcast hosting platforms, etc. The mechanics are probably way easier than you think. Granted, finding the best tools to use that you feel comfortable with and that are efficient for your purposes and fit your budget takes a little research legwork, but it can be done. There are also Facebook groups for podcasters where you can seek advice on these things interactively. Personally, I like to keep things super simple. I'll list the tools I use at the end of this post. I think that the biggest challenge is how to make a podcast that stands out in the crowd. With millions of podcasts for people to choose from, many produced by celebrities that have a natural advantage in attracting listeners, how can you compete? My advice is to design a unique podcast. And I don't use the word design lightly. Very intentional decisions need to be made. Long form, short form, solo effort, partner or group effort, interview show, reviews, audio drama, publishing commentary, something else entirely? This is where you need to do some introspection. Take stock of your strengths and your limitations. Figure out what would be sustainable and fun for you. For me, I had an idea for a short form podcast related to books with a quirky premise. It's called The Page One Challenge And by short form, I mean that each episode is less than five minutes. That makes it easy for me to produce every week and is also low investment for listeners. I refer to it as a little piece of podcast pie, like a dessert after a meal of long form podcasts. There isn't space here to delve deeply into the reasoning behind all the podcast design decisions I made, but the structure of my podcast looks like this. One, the intro music. It sets the tone I wanted, quirky and lighthearted, and it blends well with the intro phrasing. I spent many hours listening to examples to find exactly the right vibe. 2. The Introduction Instead of having a standard boilerplate intro that I use for every episode, I change the wording for every episode. It's always very short, only about 30 seconds, but often humorous. Listeners come to expect this bit of novelty. I imagine them wondering, what's he going to say this time? 3. The Reading The show has page 1 right in the title, but books are formatted in all different styles, so I'm not a stickler. I'll use a little of page 2 if it makes for a more coherent and interesting unit of narrative. Not every book is a fast starter, so some tough decisions have to be made. 4. The Reveal Here, I share the title, author, and publishing info so the listener can find the book if page one did indeed captivate them. 5. The Insider Comment from the Author Since I communicate with authors to get their permission to use their books, I take the opportunity to ask them for an interesting snippet, so listeners get to hear me read something special from the author, which helps to make a connection with the listener. It's another intentional element of novelty and unexpected delight. For me, this five-element structure creates a unique, tidy, and manageable format. In summary, producing a podcast can be fun. It should be fun. Don't do it if it isn't fun. But don't shy away from trying it. The mechanics are not as daunting as you may fear, and heck, you're an author. Creativity is your game. Dream up an idea and design a brilliant new podcast that stands out in a crowd. Here are the tools I use for my podcast. I use a Rode PodMic microphone and arm. I connect the mic to a Focusrite solo audio interface, which I then connect to my laptop. For audio recording and editing, I use PodCastle.ai. It is super simple and enables a very efficient workflow, blending the audio with the intro and outro music. It is literally designed to have just the features a podcaster needs. I use Buzzsprout for my podcast hosting platform. And I use PodPage for my website, another simple tool that is designed for podcasters. My website is ThePageOneChallenge.com P.S. I'm always looking for authors willing to let me use their book on the podcast, so have your people call my people is what I'd say if I had people, but just use the website to get in touch.
0: All right. Uh, thank you, Jeff. Uh, folks, as I'm listening, to it, I'm thinking, is somebody playing music in my front yard? I was doing, trying to figure Then, he, And then I realized, oh, he's laid some music underneath his, uh. Yeah. His, his, it was
3: uh, like inspiring. And I was like, oh, I feel like I was watching like Google or the planet earth show or whatever. I, thought, you know, it's I, like, I know. I thought somebody had
0: said, set, set up an orchestra out, out back here. And I was trying, <laughs> <laughs> trying to figure out what I could Just do. Just for to you, tr- Landis. Yeah, exactly. Uh, well, this is interesting. We don't, um, we, don't really, we haven't had blog posts on this. We have had people ask us questions in the past about podcasting. That's why we thought it would be interesting to, to have this blog on here um, because he's. people sometimes think that uh, they're never going to get into podcasting because it takes a lot of time. I'll tell you, it does take time. It takes a lot of time, but if you love it, uh, that's great. But uh, there are also creative ways you can go about podcasting that don't take as much time. Jeff has created one here with a much shorter podcast, where he's not doing interviews, um, but he's pulling in the audio and he's editing it himself. Um, so for me, this is sort of one example of, and we can talk about some other aspects of podcasting, but one example of using your creativity to come up with something that might not take a great deal of time or much of a financial investment, but which could supplement your sort of author platform. What are y'all's thoughts? And y'all can comment on, Have uh, you been, podcasting now with me a year, so Uh, we've produced about 50 episodes together. Uh, What do you think, Uh, Hannah? What do you think of podcasting?
3: It's pretty cool, pretty fun. Um, yeah, I mean, I love this post. His voice, he has the perfect voice to be a podcast host also, I feel like. I was just sort of like that in com- combination with the music in the backdrop. I'm like, wow, this man has it. <laughs> has the recording down. Um, but yeah, no, I, I think a lot of what he said, I've thought about a lot, even just like working with you on the back end of the show, Landis, when he's talking about how to make it unique. Like, how do you make the format unique? And I think like with the three of us, that's sort of um, something that we've been working really hard on tailoring our show and how we want to make sure it's as engaging and um, informative and fun for listeners as possible, like accepting feedback from listeners on the format. And um, I mean, if I look at the trajectory or the path of the show since its birth, so to speak, it's like, you know, it's changed a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, Now it's like we are able to feature a lot more authors and have um, blog posts and elevator pitches and the podcast books, all these things. And Um, so yeah, I mean, he makes a lot of really great points too. And just like knowing to expect like, okay, there's, I I had no idea there's, me, what what did he say? What was the number? Two million yeah, or twenty, at least, at least 20, 20 million. Or three million? Twenty three million? Yeah. It's like yeah, that's crazy. So I mean, he's right. You know, you have to think of it in a way that's different than like how is this show different than another show? And I mean, his show is definitely kind of cool and interesting and it speaks to people who maybe just have like five minutes on hand to listen to mm-hmm. something. So um but yeah, I, there's a lot of good stuff in there.
0: Yeah, and we'll give a shout out to the personal story publishing project, uh Randall Jones, as well, he, he does a six minute podcast, and it's truly six uh-huh. minutes. And they take the stories that are published in his uh, personal story publishing project, and it's just the audio of those stories. So if you hear a good story that's 750 or 800 words or less, uh, he does it on the six minute podcast. So you, as an author, might decide you and your author friends are going to uh, write to a certain number and publish some of that content. Some authors have actually gone out and uh, done podcast about publishing their book and all the steps in it or marketing their book and all the steps in marketing. Uh, they've done longer form. They've done shorter form. They've done interviews. They've done them just talking themselves or talking with somebody else, all kinds of ways. Sarah, what are your thoughts? You've been at it now for a year.
2: Yeah, which is crazy that it's been almost a year. I mean, yeah. I I was lucky to step into an existing podcast, <laughs> which <laughs> makes it less daunting when it's already kind of been built. Um, but yeah, I, I think there was a lot of really good stuff in Jeff's post. And I like how he gave specific information about how he built the podcast and even like the equipment that he uses and that sort of thing. Um, and like you were saying, Landis, I think it's a good example of sort of author platform building and how to get creative about that you can do because there are so many writers out there and, and you know, everyone these days has a Facebook page and, a you know, mm-hmm. Instagram page and that sort of thing. So you have to kind of get creative about finding other ways to promote yourself and your work. So whether it's starting a podcast or um, a blog, I mean, there are authors who I have found because of their blogs and I I came to them through writing posts that they had about craft topics and then saw oh this person is a writer and that's how I got to know their novels as well Um, or you know maybe you do reviews of other people's books on Instagram or uh, TikTok or something like that and that can be a good way to network and reach writers and get yourself out there Um, and all those things take time and effort but Jeff's podcast I think is a good example of how you can keep something that's kind of contained so it doesn't take over all of your writing time <laughs> and um, you can still have time for, for other things that you're doing.
0: Yeah. And I've seen different podcasts where there are people that just love to read books and they will talk about books they've read on a podcast yeah. I and mean, you might be an author who, um, you know, and then you got video versus audio. Well, I started as audio cause I didn't know enough about both, but there are different um, approaches you would take to video and audio cause I've done some live, interviews, but I just think the atmosphere is a little bit different and how you prepare. If you're talking to a, you know, a a video camera, it's a little bit different than having a more intimate conversation like we're having right now, because you might be using your arms or your hands or you're you're talking to the camera. But some people are really good at that. And you might decide, well, I'm going to do a podcast uh, YouTube style to where they do it, where they interview somebody And you see them visually, a lot of people like that. Or you're just, you talking. I've had some authors on the show who, um, I think John Gilstrap, Thriller author, he has a video YouTube channel uh, uh, where he talks about his techniques for writing. You know, these little 15 to 20 minute segments where he gives tips. That's another way to kind of build, you know, your platform um, is is to do that. So it's, um, but remember what uh, Jeff said, it's gotta be fun. If it's not fun, uh, then uh, why do it, why spend the time? If you're interested in tools, um, those have changed over time as well for this podcast. started out in a studio, so I, I bought a, uh, I bought an audio device, uh, Zoom H5, that I hooked into a, a mixing board, and uh, it was very mobile. I've still got it, I just don't use it as much, because now we uh, record over the internet on Squadcast, and uh, what we do is we'll record individual interviews with authors that way, and then the three of us come together, and we'll do a session like this. And then I use the uh, the Rodecaster Pro Two that we're using now to drop in the different segments, like uh, you heard Jeff and you heard Paul Reale. I load those to the mixer, and we drop those in the show as we're recording. So that's and we use the Audio Technica mics, uh, and you use uh, I use Hindenburg for editing. You know, I think I may have mentioned this before, but it is it is that. Blimp that went down in the fire, so you know <clears throat> it doesn't. It's not self-destructed on me yet, though. So, Hindenburg's a pretty intuitive editing program, but there's just some of the things you can do. But I, I don't know. Um, I think you know, as I think about this, um, and I've often thought about you know an offshoot of this. There would be a shorter podcast while continuing this, and and that's just the when the creative juices get going, there is no end to what you can do uh, with podcasting. Come up with a clever name. Um, and come up with a clever idea and something that you think would be fun to do and that ties in with what you are doing uh, as an artist and you can have fun with it. Are so we get an amen from that, folks? Yeah. Amen. amen. All right, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, uh, let's do this. Um, we'll be right back. We're going to uh, come back with our book recommendations and what's coming next on the podcast. Oh, and also some uh, elevator pitches.
2: You can subscribe to Charlotte Readers Podcast wherever you'd like to get your podcasts. We're on all major podcast platforms, and the best part is, it's free. Oh, and if you like what we're doing, please leave us a review, because when you do, we travel much farther and wider in podcast land.
0: All right, here we are in Act 3. Uh, this is our book recommendation section, and also some elevator pitches and what's coming next. So, starting off, Sarah, what are you uh, recommending this week to read?
2: Um, today I'm recommending a short story collection by Alice Munro called "Hate Ship, Friendship, Courtship, Love Ship, Marriage." Wow. <laughs> Another all great title. <laughs> all the ships. Yeah, ships all the and ships. <laughs> um, big and ship,
0: small ship, little boat, big boat, exactly ship. yacht. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Did
2: you read um, it on a ship? <laughs> <Good>. <laughs>
0: yeah, it's getting, getting late in the recording process here, but um, <laughs> um,
2: we're, we're we're falling apart just a little bit, but yeah. we're hanging yeah. it there. <laughs> Um, So this collection is, I guess I would characterize the stories as all sort of uh, character dramas. Like they're all about people and their relationships. They're very grounded. Um, there's one about an elderly couple. Uh, the the wife is in a nursing home and she starts to develop a new romance. And how does the husband react to that? Um, there's one about a woman who has cancer and this encounter she has with a teenage boy. So it's just different sort of interesting human situations. But her writing is so good. I mean, she won the Nobel Prize. Like she's one of our great writers. Um, her work is just beautiful, very observant. She really deeply understands human psychology I think and human nature and portrays that in subtle ways so um this is a great way to read her work if you haven't before and I would recommend this book to anyone
0: All right sounds like a great book uh, Hannah what you got for us
3: I am recommending a book called Glove Shy A Sister's Reckoning by Janet Hurley um she is a North Carolina writer she's located in Asheville Um, and this is a great book out this spring so at this point it'll have been out for a few months now but it's a memoir um, and it's about Janet's experience losing her brother to addiction Um, and she writes kind of from a different perspective or just you know she's got this journalism background so she's written for Our State and Verve and a bunch of cool publications and she has that kind of um, gift of description so she's very good at um reporting research describing things really accurately and that kind of thing and so she kind of takes the reader along this journey of you know finding out more information about her brother and um, her own past and history and interviewing people in his life and stuff like that so it almost just feels like you're kind of a companion on her um mission the whole time uh, it's, it's really unique. It's a good book. And, um, yeah, she's, she's just a really good writer. So definitely recommend that one. There's a kind of a sports thing to it too. It takes place in New York and her brother was a boxer. So if you're a boxer, you know, <laughs>
0: you <go>. all right, <laughs> pick it great. up. <laughs> well, like, uh, Sarah, I'm recommending a short story collection this time by Louis L'Amour. Uh, this is, uh, the collected short stories of Louis L'Amour. Um, there are four volumes of this to choose from. So, uh, I recommend them all. They're quick reads. Uh, they're just shorter versions of uh, his longer uh, novels, novellas that he writes, uh, uh, mostly set uh, in the West. And if you're looking for just a quick story to, right before bed, this is a good one, or in a hammock, or you know, out on the front porch, or on the beach, uh, these are good to have. Um, and we've got one from Mark West
6: here. Hello. This is Mark West with the Storied Charlotte blog. My book recommendation today is a powerful young adult novel called Dry. It's written by a father-son team. Their names are Neil Shusterman and Jared Shusterman. Dry is set in California and it's all about what happens to a community during a time period of prolonged drought. In this novel, Everyone in the area of California where this story is set runs out of water. What the authors do is show how the lack of water leads to a disintegration of the entire community. This is a powerful novel that deals with issues that we are all having to face now because, of course, climate change. I highly recommend it.
0: All right. uh, Thanks, Mark. Um, And uh, along with these book recommendations today, we have uh, a couple of elevator pitches. Uh, First one's from Ken uh, Shamley. He was a a blogger on our uh, podcast. Uh, We featured him previously, but uh, here is his uh, elevator pitch.
6: The best material for the artist in the world. Landscape painter Albert Bierstadt built a career portraying grand scenes of the 19th century West especially the rocky mountains and yosemite valley and sold them to wealthy patrons across the united states and europe the best material for the artist in the world tells bierstadt's story through poems in his own voice and in poems from his family critics and patrons bierstadt made and lost a fortune and along the way married his best friend's wife
0: all right uh, thanks ken for that uh, i love my time when i went out to yosemite uh where I went hiking with my son. Um, A lot of miles in just two days, though. (laughs) Wore me out quite a bit. But Yosemite is a beautiful, beautiful area. Um, All right, we got another elevator pitch. This one's from uh, Matt Scott. Let's listen in.
4: Hi, my name is Matt Scott. The name of my novel is The Ayatollah Takedown. The chief commander of the Revolutionary Guard is planning a coup to overthrow Iran's supreme leader, but he needs help from the CIA's best operatives. With tensions between Iran and the West higher than ever, the CIA is hesitant, but they know that they will never get a better chance for regime change. Will they succeed, or will the supreme leader catch on to their plans to make one last stand? New York Times bestselling author Jerome Preissler says that the Ayatollah takedown puts you right on the ground with this nonstop stop action and intrigue, making you forget you're merely on the edge of your seat.
0: All right. Sounds uh, very netflix or Amazon, doesn't it? You know, yeah, kind of fast-paced uh throw there. Thank you for that, Matt. Uh, Hannah, you want to tell folks how they can submit their own elevator pitch?
3: Yeah, you can submit on our website by going to the contact, pay- contact uh thing on the net nav- contact thing <laughs> yeah we're, we're kind of deep into the recording today <laughs> the contact tab on the navigation bar on our website charlottereaderspodcast.com um and it'll show you how to submit your elevator pitch in 30 seconds or less um right through the website
0: that's great all right and we've got some uh sir, you collected some more feedback on the right quotes uh the first book the writing life to share
2: yeah, we've been getting some great reviews from people on our street team and just general readers of the book, so we really appreciate those. Um, this one is from Claire Fullerton, who says, This gem of a book is a must-read for everyone who writes, from seasoned to aspiring authors of any genre. Landis Wade of the Charlotte Readers podcast has interviewed hundreds of authors through the years, many you will recognize, others well worth your discovery, and assembled this book of quotes from those who know well of the writing life. The right Quotes: the writing life reads like a series of pithy insights into the writing process and sheds a light on facets part and parcel to that which sustains a writer's motivation and inspiration a delightful book that delivers important food for thought um really appreciate that that's a yeah, lovely thank, review thanks for that
0: claire yeah, nice. appreciate that she was on our podcast uh a couple of years ago with uh her one of her novels and uh she also writes book reviews uh, and uh so yeah thank you claire
2: yeah, and then we also have um, from Ara Batoia. I think this is probably Cara Batoia, who uh, has been on the podcast before. Um, she says, as a writer myself, it was so interesting to read these quotes. Everything was included, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Writers talked about how hard it was to do the work and even harder to be successful after you're published. So why would anyone do it? Well, that is the question answered in these quotes. We do it in the end because we all love writing. I'm sure when I get discouraged in my writing, I'll pick up this book for inspiration. Um, I hope that she does. I think Aww. that's that's a lovely review. Thank you.
0: Well, that was certainly the goal. So thank you for that. And I'm glad it's a, a resource that you can use for inspiration. All right. Well, uh, we are now at the end of another episode. And it's uh, time, Sarah, to let people know what's coming next.
2: Sure, um, next time we've got a interview with Sylvia M- Molnar in her gripping novel, The Nursery, which Jessamine Chan calls a radical novel. Chan says, I'm obsessed with this book. <laughs> High praise. Um, we also feature book five of the Write Quote series called Writing Techniques and Characters. We're going to have audio of the foreword and the reflections and discussion of some of our favorite quotes. And then we're going to have new elevator pitches and book recommendations.
0: All right, good stuff. Uh, Hannah, take us out of here.
3: Read on, write on, and... Rock on. (laughs) (laughs) British.